you have a Bible, go ahead and open it up to Romans chapter 3. We're continuing our series in Romans part 1. And this week, uh, we finally get some grace. So that's really encouraging. Uh, Romans chapter 3, verses 21 through 31. It can be found on page 941 in the black Bibles that you'll see under the chair. So if you don't have a Bible, we encourage you to grab one of those to follow along so you can track with what we're learning from God's Word today. And if you don't have a Bible at home, you're welcome to keep that Bible. Uh, we'll, we will restock the chairs. Uh, we've got plenty more of those. So this week we're calling the sermon Grace for Sinners as we look at Romans 3, verses 21 through 31. If you've been with us, we've been getting hammered uh, by being told again and again in Romans that we're sinners. Uh, the way it's flowed, as we saw in chapter 1, the obvious sins of a pagan rebellious culture are called out, and as Paul calls out the sexual immorality and the sin of a pagan culture that has just run away from God, uh, the religious people who love God's law say, yes, Paul, they're sinful. And then Paul turns on the religious people in chapter 2 and the beginning of chapter 3 and says, you're also sinful. Uh, none of us have kept God's law perfectly. So we're all in that sense in the same boat of sinfulness, in the same predicament. Uh, we've talked about how Jesus, when he was confronting the religious leaders of his day, talked about the concept that you don't think you need a doctor if you don't think you're sick. And so Paul has graciously shown us again and again throughout Romans that we're all spiritually sick, that we're all struggling spiritually, that none of us are perfect, none of us are, are righteous. I remember years ago, I think I was in my early 30s, I had a really bad case of poison ivy. How many of you ever gotten poison ivy? Some of, the, some of you gotten that. It's really terrible. Um, you can go out in the woods here. And I got to the point, and I've actually read articles that this can happen, where your body reacts even to the smell of it. Like, even if you don't touch it, it gets worse and worse. And I had gotten to that point where I could just go out to the woods, not touch any at all, and I would then have another reaction. Uh, and one time I had it really bad. It was all over me, hands and arms and legs and face. And I was red, and it was itchy, and it was kind of puffy and inflamed. And it was just obvious, right? It was obvious that I had a problem which drove me to go seek a cure. It drove me to go seek a solution. I went to the doctor and I got a prednisone shot. And have you ever gotten a prednisone shot? Pretty amazing what some of these medicines can do. Um, and he said, if this doesn't take care of it, we'll then go ahead and fill out a uh, prescription. We'll get some pills of prednisone as well. So he gave me the shot. It kind of slowed things down. It wasn't quite enough. So then I took pills for, I don't remember how long, but for maybe a couple of weeks. Um, it was amazing. The, the medicine cured the poison ivy. It made it go away. Prednisone, some kind of steroid, it reduces swelling, right? And so it takes it away, but there was a secondary benefit that was really amazing. Um, you see, I, I injured my back when I was 15 playing sports. I uh, was never really big enough to play, but I always wanted to be bigger than I was, so I broke myself, right? Um, so my back has never really worked properly. Now, it works in general, right? I can lift things if, if you need help moving. Call me, I'll come help. Um, so it, it sometimes hurts really badly, but most of the time, it's just a dull ache, right? It's just kind of a daily dull ache in my lower back, and I've learned to ignore it. But when I took that prednisone, it went away. It magically disappeared. I mean, for three weeks, came back. Um, but when it went away, I realized, wow, I've just been kind of suppressing this problem, this sickness that's deep inside me, so to speak. And it just, in my mind, became an illustration of the problem of sin that we have as human beings. 
that Paul has mapped out in chapter 1 and chapter 2 and chapter 3. There are some of us that sin very overtly. We just shake our fist at God. We run the other way. Uh, We indulge in all kinds of open rebellion. We call it sometimes just being a pagan, being rebellious, or just kind of seeking pleasure, uh, running away from God. And it's obvious, and you can see it. But a lot of us, we just have this dull ache. We have this sin deep inside us, but most people can't see us or see the sin in us because we're living generally obedient lives. We do the right thing most of the time. We try to be nice. We try to be good neighbors. We try to be good citizens. Paul says both categories are sick, and both categories need to be cured. Whether it's obvious or whether it's hidden, we're all alike sinners. And the beautiful thing that Paul is giving us this week, that the Scripture is giving us, is there is real grace for all of us. Real grace for all of us who are real sinner. So let's look at verses 21 through 31. Verses 21 through 31. So we've been in several weeks seeing we're sinners, we're sinners, we're sinners, we're sinners. We fail to show the world the righteousness of God. Verse 21 says, but now, but now, amen. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe, for there is no distinction. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by His blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in His divine forbearance, He had passed over former sins. It was to show His righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Then what becomes of our boasting? It is excluded. By what kind of law? By a law of works? No, but by the law of faith. For we hold that one is justified by faith apart from works of the law. Or is God the God of Jews only? Is he not the God of Gentiles also? Yes, of Gentiles also. Since God is one who will justify the circumcised by faith, and the uncircumcised by faith. Do we then overthrow the law by this faith? By no means. On the contrary, we uphold the law. Let me pray for us and ask that God would help us to just savor this, to enjoy his grace to us. God, we thank you that you love us. We thank you that you've shown that love explicitly through Jesus, taking our sin and giving us his righteousness. And we pray that we would not only trust that, and lean on it, but that we would live differently because of it, that we would uphold the beauty and morality of your law by grace because of the kindness you've shown to us in Christ. And we ask this in Jesus' name, amen. So grace is for sinners. Grace is God's kindness to us. It's his goodness to us. It's a gift. And it's for all of us the same because we're all sinners. Some of us, as I said, sin very openly, very Uh, plainly, and some of us sin more quietly. We hide it better than others, um, and it's for all. So the first category that I want to show us about what makes grace so gracious is that it's for all people. And the way Paul talks about this here, he's not saying it's universally for every person in the sense of every person is actually saved. He's saying it's for all kinds of people because he's been showing us the contrast between open rebellion and... uh, obedience of religious people. So many of us, because you're in a church, you're a maybe slightly religious person, you want to try to do what's right, but you're still a sinner. 
you still need grace. Some of you, maybe this is the first time you've ever been in a church, or maybe you've just lived a wild life of rebellion against God, and everybody sees you as a sinner. You've seen yourself as a sinner. We're all sinners, all kinds of people. Every category of person is a sinner, and therefore every category, all kinds of people need God's grace. So he starts out in verse 21, uh, and we'll reread some of this, but now the righteousness of God has been manifested or shown, displayed apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. So he's saying doing the law is not how God's righteousness is actually displayed in the world. It's actually displayed by his grace. Now he's going to come wrap around to this at the very end and say, we do actually do the law, right? He, he defined that earlier. Hearing the law is not righteousness. Doing the law is righteous. But he's saying the means by which people see the righteousness of God is not by you and me just digging deeper and trying harder. It's by God's grace being given to us. And then that presses us to then do what's right. So he says, it's manifested, it's shown in the world apart from the law. And what he means is by apart from obedience to the law, apart from us being perfect and doing everything the right way. And we have to go back, I think, to Genesis to lay the foundation of God's purpose for us. What is God's purpose for humanity? Do you remember? God's purpose for humanity is for us to to reflect his image, to show his image, to manifest his righteousness in the world. So God's purpose is for us to do that. And there's two ways that we go about this as human beings. One way is we say, no, God, I hate you. I want to be my own God. And that's that kind of category of open rebellion that Paul talked about in chapter 1, verses 18 and following. Just obvious rebellion, no, God, I'm not going to do it. Jesus had this parable where he talked about two brothers. One brother said, yes, Father, I'll obey you, and then he went and didn't actually obey him. Another brother said, no, Father, I won't obey you, but then later on he changed his mind and obeyed him. And Jesus said, which one's obedient? And the listeners were like, well, the one who said no, but changed his mind and then obeyed later. So Jesus and Paul are trying to show us that religious people often say yes, but we can't actually pull it off. We can't be fully obedient. We can't do everything that's right. And so that's the point, again, that Paul is trying to press here, that the grace uh, is what makes the righteousness come through in our lives, not us just saying, I can do it. I'm stronger than other people. It says, but the law and the prophets bear witness to it. The law and the prophets tell us this too. So the law simultaneously says, do what's right to honor God, and then it also, in the whole sacrificial system, says, but you're a sinner that's going to need God's grace. So we want to do what's right. We fail to do that. We need God's grace to forgive us and change our hearts so we actually begin to do what's right. Verse 22 says it this way, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. So that's the kind of righteousness that's being displayed in our life. It's a righteousness that comes through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. And here's where he's really going to press this all idea. He says, for there is no distinction. There is no distinction. So if you've devoted yourself to being a very obedient person and honoring God and doing what's right, this should offend you, right? Because what Paul is saying here is there's no distinction between you and a rebel. How how could he possibly say that? Because we're all sinners. Remember last week we used the illustration of uh, people long jumping, right? Thankful for this illustration. Another friend, another pastor used that illustration. I thought this is really helpful. Those of you that are the best jumpers in the room still can't jump the Grand Canyon. I grabbed a picture of a guy attempting to jump the Grand Canyon here. Um, 
I'm sure it's faked. I'm sure he's not actually trying to jump the whole Grand Canyon. It's probably some kind of set up picture here. But remember, the illustration we used is some of you are fantastic athletes, and you can jump much farther than others, right? My son has an incredible, like almost superhuman jumping ability, and I would put him up against anybody when it comes to jumping, but I'm not going to let him try to jump the Grand Canyon, right? I'm just going to say, no, that's, that's not going to work. And that's what trying to win God's favor through obedience is like. Those of us that are the obedient people, those of us that are law-abiding and try to do what's right, we may jump farther than the open rebel, but none of us can measure up to the absolute perfect righteousness of God. The perfect righteousness of God is only manifested by God's grace as we depend on Jesus through faith. And that's the point that Paul is making here. So again, he says, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe, for there is no distinction. And then to this verse that I quote every couple of weeks, probably one of the verses I go back to most often is Romans 3.23, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. If you don't understand that verse, you don't understand the gospel. And this is the biggest danger for those of us that are religious is to fall back into thinking, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, meaning the really naughty bad people. But I'm different because I do what's right. Paul's saying, no, there's no distinction. When it comes to sin, there's no distinction. I mean, maybe you can measure and say, but I jumped 10 feet. He only jumped two feet. But the measure is God. The measure is God's holiness, his perfection, his righteousness. And by that measure, there's no distinction. We're all in the same category. We're all sinners in need of grace, in need of a God who would forgive our sins, in need of a God who would be righteous for us because we can't be righteous enough on our own. So Paul says all have sinned, we're all the same, there's no distinction, and then verse 24, and all are justified by his grace as a gift. So here's why we would say he doesn't mean when he says all, universally every single person, because there's so many other scriptures that tell us uh, that there will be people in the end that refuse God's kindness. There will be people who are locked out, so to speak, who say, I don't want you, God, and God says, your will be done, I will allow you to exist eternally apart from me, which we would call eternal torment. We would call that hell, living apart from God eternally. Our, our eternal soul uh, in anguish because we've refused God's presence. So, so we believe that, that some people will live in that condition because Jesus said it so many times. And so here when this verse says, all have sinned and all are justified, what it means is all kinds of people. Even the really good people have also sinned. And even the good people, if they're going to be justified, they're going to be justified by Jesus. They're justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. So we're all alike. We're all sinners, and our only hope is Jesus being good enough for us. My question for you is, is that your hope? I think this realization that we're all the same affects how we relate to each other. So here's how I think this truth gets applied in the church. The church sometimes has a reputation for infighting. Have you ever heard that before, that Christians and people in churches fight? Have you ever heard that before, some of you? I don't think it's a, I don't think it's a uh, reputation that our specific church necessarily has, but Christians are kind of known for fighting about like the color of carpet and the style of music, and if people move certain pieces of furniture, you know, people get upset about it, and, and we tend to fight about secondary things. We tend to fight about our preferences. We tend to fight about how to apply the scripture rather than just trying to obey it and recognize that we might vary a little bit on how we, we do that. And so I think recognizing that we're all the same 
actually empowers us to be patient with each other. It actually em- empowers us to get along with other Christians who recognize that they're also sinners like we are. And so we can come to them and say, I don't get why you do this, and I don't get why you do that, and this kind of makes me uncomfortable, but I see that we're family. Because I see that you know you're a sinner, and I know that I'm a sinner, and we both recognize that our only hope is not in these three things that we disagree on. Our, our hope is in Jesus, who took the wrath of God upon himself, who gives us his righteousness. So, so that's my hope. And so I think that affects how we get along with each other within community. We begin loving people that are different than us. And then, of course, that also has an effect on how we love those that are not in our community, those that are outsiders. It would make us actually be more hospitable. It would make us be more open and more welcoming to outsiders who don't practice the same things we do, or to people who are still living in their sin and haven't repented yet and just say, yeah, sin is the answer. This is what's going to bring me fun in life. And so those of us that really know we're sinners can see that and say, well, yeah, I get that because I'm, I'm a sinner too. But Jesus has changed my heart and it gives us a kind of patience and a kind of love and a kind of graciousness with those who don't see things the way we do and who don't live the way we do. So my prayer is that these truths, that we're all alike sinners and that we're all alike saved just by grace, not by anything we've done, would make us more gracious with others. We recognize God was patient with us, so we will be patient with others. We recognize that God loved us first, so we will love others even before they've won our love, so to speak. We'll love them first, because that's how Jesus loved us. And it'll change how we relate to each other. So God's grace is for all people, for all kinds of people. No matter who you see yourself as, it makes us all the same. We're all sinners. We're all saved only by God's grace. The next thing that we see is really the focal point of how this all works, and it's that grace is in Christ. Christ is what makes it all happen. So we believe in the Trinity. We believe that God is one and that he is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And there's a unity here, and there's a focus in this text on how God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit all work together in a way that God the Son, Jesus, is actually accomplishing this redemption. And it gives us some specifics of what Jesus does for us. So we'll read verse 24 again. So we were told that we're all sinners, and then verse 24, and are justified by his grace as a gift. So that's another way of understanding what grace means. Grace is a gift. That means you didn't earn it. You didn't earn it by being so righteous. God says, oh, you're really good. Now I'll give you grace. No, grace is a gift. None of us earned it because we're all sinners. So his grace is a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. The word redemption is a word that would have been used for buying back a slave, paying so that a slave could be released and be set free. So we were enslaved to our passions, to our sin, even to our good works, enslaved to these idols and false gods, and now Jesus has won our freedom, our redemption. And so we have this redemption, how? It's in Christ Jesus. Verse 25 says, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. What does this word propitiation mean? Uh, some of you have a different translation and it'll say atonement. Raise your hand if you have, do you have atonement, some of you. Yeah, so a lot of the other translations use atonement, which is a perfectly fine way of explaining that. Um, the word propitiation is based on the Greek word that points us back in the Old Testament to the place where atonement took place in the Holy of Holies. So you remember 
the Old Testament Jews, they had this temple. It was a tabernacle, and then it was made into a permanent building, and it had kind of outer rings to show that you could kind of get deeper and deeper into the presence of God. And then this inter area called the uh, Holy of Holies, only the high priest went in there once a year to make atonement, which means the covering of sin, the forgiveness of sin. So a sacrifice was made and the blood was sprinkled on this cover. It's often called the atonement cover or the mercy seat. And so that's the same Greek word, right? So if, when the guys uh, translated the Old Testament Hebrew Bible into Greek, they used this word, this Greek word that we're translating into propitiation. So some translators say it's atonement or seat of atonement. Others translate it as propitiation. Both words mean kind of the same thing. They just sound, of course, very different, right? So atonement has this connotation, specifically going back into the Old Testament, of this place where we have the box of God's law at the center symbolizing his holiness, and there's the sacrifice that's made. Blood is spilt so that the sins of the people could be forgiven, and we were told that God's presence would come down and sit upon that spot like a throne, and so this atonement place, this mercy seat, is like the seat, the, the throne where God would come and show his presence. And God would show his presence and be with his people through the blood of a sacrifice. All of that should make you think of the cross. And that's what Paul is telling us here. That which was pictured in the Old Testament, it was broadcast. It was like a, a cartoon or a flannel graph or a billboard, a, a symbol, a sign it's this sign of God coming and dwelling with his people through the sacrifice. But Jesus is the real sacrifice. He's the way it actually happens. Now, why do our translators with the CSV use propitiation? It's a weird word. Any of you use that in your common everyday life? Um, the reason they use it is because it has some technical meaning that they like and they want to hold on to. Because there was a theologian about 1,500 years ago that didn't like propitiation because propitiation literally means to make somebody happy with you. And the reason this old theologian Dodd didn't like that is because it was used with the ancient Greek gods. So this word was used with the ancient Greek gods, right? And the ancient Greek gods, they would always be mad at you, and then you could bribe them with sacrifices to get them to be happy with you again, right? And so Dodd didn't like that because he associated it with the ancient Greek gods who were fickle and who were not uh, moral gods at all. They were not role models, right? They were always doing bad things, and they were mad at you one minute and happy with you the next. And so he really didn't like the association of this word. But problem is, the word, again, literally means that God is happy with us. And the distinction is God is not happy with us in the same way that the Greek gods were. He's not happy with you because you've bribed him through some sacrifices. He's happy with you because the sacrifice that he made on your behalf. And so a lot of theologians think it's really important that we hold on to this. To, to be propitious towards someone, it means to be happy with them. So what this is telling us is because of what Jesus did, God is no longer angry with you and your sin. God is now pleased with you. God delights in you. God loves you. That is central to the gospel. And so we can argue about what's the best word to use for that, but please hold on to this concept. God is happy with you through Jesus. Jesus absorbed the wrath of God, the right, appropriate wrath of God, because we really were sinners. Those ancient Greek gods, they probably didn't have a good reason to be angry with us, right? But God, the holy God, the real, true, awesome God who created all things has every reason to be angry with us in our sin, and yet he loves you. He delights in you. He is propitious towards you because of Jesus. By faith, it says, 
in Jesus by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness. So again, it's manifesting, it's displaying God's righteousness through his kindness to us, his love for us. In his divine forbearance, he had passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. So it's saying he had this forbearance, this patience with your former sins because nobody's sins were actually forgiven through the sacrificial system. It was all like they were waiting on credit for Jesus, the actual sacrifice to take place. So all of those Old Testament sacrifices, the whole book of Hebrews is written about this, were pictures. They were saying the payment's coming. The real payment is coming. God really is holy and he really does dwell with his people through sacrifices and he really does love you and he really does show mercy to you. But those were all pictures, Hebrews says, shadows of the real thing that's come in Jesus. So here we're told, yeah, God was just patiently waiting, holding off on exacting payment for those sins until the true payment came through Jesus. So if you trust in Jesus, your sins are forgiven. The payment has been made. And so this should bring us great joy. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. How can God actually be righteous and at the same time make sinful people righteous? How can he do that? The only way for him to do that is Jesus. It's the only possible way. Some religions really, really emphasize that God is just happy with you and a vague sense of righteousness doesn't matter. Many Eastern religions lean this way. There's no right and wrong. There is no justice. There is no truth. All suffering is just an illusion. And so in that kind of concept, yeah, God's happy with you because there's nothing to be mad about because he's never mad about anything. And then the other concept is, no, God is absolutely righteous, and so you better toe the line and be righteous enough to please him. And that's the other extreme in world religions. Only in Christianity do both of those concepts come together beautifully, where we have both God's justice and God's mercy. So he is both just, and he's the one who by grace justifies those who don't deserve it. And that's what we have in the gospel. And so we have this beautiful encouragement. And I think a a good way to think about this is that the object of our faith is Christ. And we can sometimes emphasize how we live our life and how we respond to that object more than the object itself. So so I have an illustration here. I I think I got this idea from Sinclair Ferguson, who's a great Scottish preacher. I, I have a lady here who is nervous to get on a plane. Any of you ever get nervous or sick before you go fly? I mean, raise your hand if you, if you get... Okay, none of you. Okay, well, this illustration's not going to be very helpful then. Um, but you've probably heard of people like this. Probably heard of people that get nervous about flying on a plane, right? Because it doesn't really make sense that a giant hunk of metal can fly you through the air. It's just hard to understand unless you're really gifted in physics how that actually works. All right, so I have a picture here of someone who's really upset. She's really nervous about getting on that plane. She's scared to fly. She's filled with doubt and she lacks faith. Yet she gets on the plane and she survives. Why? Because the plane works, right? Contrast this with this guy who's uh, strapped on some kind of like homemade wings he's made here. So, so this is some guy, some kind of like Renaissance festival or steampunk festival. He's dressed up in these funny homemade wings. And I know in the back, you can't really see his face, but I'm just going to tell you, he's got a smug look on his face. This guy has a look of confidence. 
He has a look of faith. He trusts in what he's done here. Do, do you get the distinction? One person is full of doubt. One person is struggling. One person is sick. They just they don't even want to think about it, but the plane still gets them where they want to go. This guy is smug. He's, he's full of confidence. If he goes and jumps off a cliff, he's going to die, right? It's not going to work. Do, do you see the, the difference? It's the object of your faith that matters. And so my, my encouragement for you by way of application is that you would grow in your knowledge of the grace that God has for you in Christ because Christ is what can save you. And the way that your faith grows is by seeing more and more how awesome Christ is. The more you delight in his kindness to you, the more you delight that God is pleased with you because of Jesus, the more you will grow in your faith. We often kind of look at ourselves and, and think, do I have enough faith? Am I strong enough? Uh, or do I have too much doubt? And, and we get all caught up thinking about our faith. And our faith is not to be in our faith. Our faith is to be in Jesus. You're not trusting in your faithiness. You're, you're trusting in Jesus. And so make sure you highlight and long and savor uh, the, the beauty of who Jesus is. But long to see him more clearly. Spend time in the scriptures so that you can see Jesus, not so that you can say, hey, look at me, I read a Bible. Pray so you can spend time with this God who's pleased with you in Jesus, not so that you can say, hey, I'm, I'm a religious person that prays. Pursue him because that's where the grace that God has for you is in. It's in, it's in Jesus. So, so trust him. Don't trust your trust. Trust Jesus. Grow in these things. But the last thing that we're going to say or see is that grace is by faith. So now that we've framed faith as a response to Jesus, not something that's about our own strength, Paul's going to emphasize this here in the last section. Starting in verse 27, he says, Then what becomes of our boasting? It is excluded. By what kind of law? By law of works? No, but by the law of faith. For we hold that one is justified by faith apart from works of the law. So just a standard definition of faith, justification by faith. We're coming up here on Halloween. It'll be the 499th uh, anniversary of Martin Luther nailing the 95 Theses to the wall of the Wittenberg Church, starting what we know as the Protestant Reformation. And at the center of that was Martin Luther's idea that we're trusting in Jesus, not trusting in ourselves and our own works. Very important doctrine. Martin Luther said a lot of other crazy things as well, but he said some really good, helpful, foundational things that help us to understand the Scriptures. And this was one, highlighting this idea that you could memorize in this one verse. We hold that one is justified by faith apart from works of the law. Now, this seems to, seems to conflict with the book of James, and I'd encourage you, we've got recordings of our sermons on James. You can go back and look to those, but I'll just say real quickly, James and Paul tend to use the words faith, uh, and justification in slightly different ways. And so James tends to use the word justification as a public display of our righteousness, whereas uh, Paul tends to emphasize justification as God seeing you as righteousness, as seeing you as righteous and declaring you as righteous. And then in faith, Paul talks about faith generally as a real faith, whereas James talks about, well, there's real faith and then there's fake faith, right? So you just have to understand that they're kind of using these words slightly differently. And here Paul is saying, your only hope, your only hope is Jesus. It's not you, which excludes boasting. You can't boast because there's nothing you've done that you can boast about. I have a picture here of a 
boaster. Um, he's thumping his chest, uh, saying how great he is. And man, he was great. But, you know, it's arguable if he's still great anymore. Maybe he'll be great again. But we all recognize that in sports, in life, we, we come to an end of our own greatness. You might be great today, but you're not going to be great tomorrow. And what Paul is saying is that faith keeps us from boasting. Again, in context, he's helping the Roman Christians understand how can a culture of people where you've got Christians that have lived a clean life and tried to do everything right, and then you've got Christians who have come from an incredible life of rebellion, how can we get along in one community? How, how can we love each other? Well, it's a humility of recognizing none of us have anything to boast about. Whether you've achieved a lot or you've achieved a little, we all can only boast in Jesus and what he's done for us. And that, that law of faith disarms our boasting. It disarms our arrogance. It makes us humble and, and kind and take time with each other. It makes us gracious with each other. Paul clarifies here that this doesn't mean that the law is thrown out, right? He says uh, it's taken away by faith. Uh, and verse 29 now says, Or is God the God of Jews only? Is he not the God of Gentiles also? Yes, of Gentiles also, since God is one who will justify the circumcised by faith and the uncircumcised through faith. So there's this unity in culture between those of us that were religious, those of us that were not religious. In this context, he's saying those that are circumcised, those that are not, those that are Jews, those that are not Jews, because God is one. There's this beautiful unity in who God is. I've been reading a book on the Trinity lately, which has been, been really great. It talks about the distinction in the persons, right? Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, yet this unity. And he says it's like, it's like harmony. In harmony, if you know about music, harmony is when those three notes come together and they make a beautiful sound because they're, they're operating in a sense of unity. They're distinct notes, but they're going in the same direction. So we have this oneness, this harmony here in God that God is uh, harmonious, God is one, and there's only one way to be justified. There's not two ways. There's not being justified by being really religious, and then the other people that, well, they need God's grace. We all, we all need God's grace, and we all need to, to have the open hands of faith where we rely on Jesus instead of relying on ourselves. Verse 31, do we then overthrow the law by this faith? By no means. On the contrary, we uphold the law. So, Paul, are you saying then it doesn't matter how you live? We're all saved by grace, so religious people just give up trying to live a righteous life, don't care about that anymore because it's all by grace, which means we don't care about obedience. No, that's not what he's saying. He's just saying you can't be saved by obedience, but because you're saved, you'll want to obey. And that's the difference. Keller paints this so beautifully. He says you're not uh, accepted by obedience, but because you're accepted, you'll obey right? Again, we're, we're not going to love so that God will love us. We love him because he loved us first. We're not going to forgive each other so that we can win God's favor and then he'll forgive us. We forgive each other because in Christ, God forgave us first. So Paul's point is here, we ultimately uphold the morality of the law because we love God and love others because he loved us first. Does it mean we're perfect? No, it doesn't mean we're perfect. It just means we we begin to, to love God, to love others, to serve others because of what God is doing in our life, this operation of faith, of grace, of him transforming us, of him showing us that we're loved. Well, we need to uh, wrap up here. I, I think 
by way of application, as you think about how faith is working in your life, I would just say this. Oftentimes, the, the hard work for this happens in the area of our strengths. Um, as we think about the idea of boasting, God doesn't want you to boast in your flesh. He's given you gifts. He's given you strengths that other people don't have. So God wants you to use those strengths to glorify him, to serve others, to love him and to love others, but we can't boast in it. And God gives us this wonderful gift for those of us that have children. Often our children prevent us from accomplishing some of our goals in life. I don't know if you've ever seen this happen. Uh, Maybe if you don't have children, you just have coworkers that play that role for you or a spouse or a friend or a family member. But God puts people in our lives that sometimes prevent us from being as awesome as we know we could be, right? Uh, And those areas of strength where you feel your anger rising up, your emotion rising up because you're being blocked, because you can't exhibit the glory of your flesh, I would say just, just thank God for those moments and recognize that God's goal is not for you to boast in your flesh. Does he want you to use those gifts? Yes, use those gifts. But those, those moments where we suffer, where we're blocked, where we can't be successful, it, it forces us to remember that we're not trusting in the accomplishment of our flesh and in the strength of what we can accomplish. We're, we're trusting in Jesus. So there's no boasting. It's the law of faith. There's this uh, beautiful picture of that in Romans 8. And we won't go there, but just to kind of paint the picture, we'll get to Romans 8 as we continue to study this. There's this idea that we see in Romans 8 that, that in our life, we continue to suffer. We continue to struggle. And I know that some of you are suffering in unique ways, ways that I haven't suffered. You might be sick in ways that I haven't been sick. Uh, You might be struggling with some relationships in in ways that I haven't struggled. Um, And and recognize that God promises us in Romans 8 that, that nothing that we suffer in this world can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus. We have a unique suffering coming up. Some of you, you know, are just depressed and suffering and struggling because of the difficulties in your own life, but a lot of us are depressed because of an election coming up, right? Um, like no matter, no matter what you do, even if your person wins, you're still going to be unhappy, right? It's kind of a, a no-win situation. And, and Paul keeps reminding us, don't hope in the here and now. Hope, hope in Jesus. Does that mean we give up and don't do anything? No, we still We still vote, we still participate in life, we still try to obey God, we still try to do what's right, but again, our our hope is not in what we can accomplish in this world. Our hope is in Jesus, and that hope in Jesus then sets us free to live life with a reckless abandon where we obey him, we love him, we love those around us because of what he's done in our life. I want to just leave you with that that picture again. Nothing that comes, I don't know what's going to happen this week in your life or in my life, But nothing that comes in our life can separate us from the love, the grace that God has for us in Christ Jesus. Let me pray for us and we'll respond in worship. God, thank you that you love us. Thank you that you've shown us grace through Jesus, who died on the cross for our sins, who became that ultimate sacrifice that Hebrews tells us was pictured in the Old Testament, but has finally arrived at just the right time in Christ. I pray, Lord, that we could look back on that that time in history and you would grow our faith so that we'd see more and more that, that Jesus is an object worthy of our faith, that he loves us, that because of him you delight in us, you're pleased with us. We thank you for that. We pray that you would change us, that you'd make us look more and more like your son Jesus because of what Jesus has done for us. And we pray in Jesus' name, amen.